You guys have been doing this for four years, you said? Don't. <laughs> Longer. Oh, no. This show, we've been doing this show seven years this August. <laughs> well, see, the thing about purgatory is it's hard to keep track of time. Oh, yeah. I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We saw August of 2016 when we started. Oh, God. Long time. And I've been smiling ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got it to work. Thanks for checking. Well, it's good to have you, man. Where, yeah, uh, where, where are you calling us from? Are, are you, are you in Los Angeles? Oh no, 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 no. I'm a, oh, I'm excellent in, decision. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. Okay. But even worse. <laughs> <laughs> where, 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 uh, New York City or upstate? Where are we looking? Uh, I'm in Queens. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. I was, I was, I was wondering. I, I, I figured. You know, based upon the movie taking place in Rochester, I was like, we could have an outside chance. You know, you could be from uh, Garbage Plate Town. Nick Brandreth is from Rochester, like yeah. the the real person, not the character. I mean, well, I guess both, but um, yeah, we shot in Rochester. We've we've worked a few times up that way. It's I've never had a garbage plate though. I don't know, um, but yeah, they, they I feel like they got to when you go there. Hold on, what's a garbage plate? Google it. It's Google got, it. <laughs> it's got a bunch of weird. It's just like a, a – it's a catch-all term, right? Like you could do yeah. garbage plates with macaroni and cheese, potato salad, hot dogs, just burger patties. It's sort of just a a barbecue on a plate. Uh, and everyone kind of has their their favorite one. Most of it is stuff that I don't eat personally. Uh, and truthfully, Rochester has a ton of good food. So when we've been up there shooting and stuff, I'm always eating something else. I've had like some of the best Mediterranean food I've ever had up there. Yeah, I've heard nothing but uh, great things about Rochester. And it's, uh, it's a great place to shoot film for sure. Oh, who's who's the um, and I don't know why I'm looking at you because there's no way in the universe <laughs> you know this answer. But who is the radio DJ in Rochester, New York? That uh, Brother Weeze. Do you know Brother Weeze? Mm-mm. Okay. No. <laughs> he doesn't eat garbage plates and he doesn't listen to Brother Weeze. I uh, I only know that because of my uh, in my Opie and Anthony days. Um, they uh, brother ways was uh, very inspirational to them. So if you could imagine the chaos <laughs> of Opie and Anthony and brother Weeze being the seed for them. He's kind of, he's kind of like, um, uh, what's his name to weird Al? Uh, Oh, Dr. Demento. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> brother Weeze is like this 80 year old ripped dude oh. covered in tattoos. and says, bro. Hey, bro. <laughs> Check him out, brother Ways. We'll see you next week. I'm still thinking of opioid and Anthony for some reason. (laughs) That'd be pretty good. I mean, uh, opioid and Anthony probably would last longer than opioid and Anthony did, to be honest. You know, when uh, when that ended, boy, did it end. All right, let's get off of the horrible (laughs) subject. Your fault. Don't look at me. So, I mean, Nick, um, Nick, Jesus Christ. We're talking about Nick Brown. <laughs> Dan, I think the main reason why we want you here is, you know, to settle, you know, the, the oldest rivalry in show business, which is clearly Blue Hour versus Overlook Hour. So, you know, we, we definitely want to, you know, get get that uh, ironed out. <laughs> which hour? <laughs> That's right. Which is the superior hour. And uh, after watching a Blue Hour, I'm going to be honest, I'll secede. <laughs> yeah. Seven years down the drain. You know, what are we going to do? But no, man, uh, congrats on the movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, and that's interesting coming from me because I do not like science fiction is tricky for me uh-huh. um, because I feel like it quickly ventures into homework and especially with time travel. 
Um, I feel like I can't, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting that we, you know, a common theme in narratives is an unreliable narrator. For whatever reason, I view time travel as an unreliable narrator too. I can't ever trust anything. And it, it, it always throws me off and it keeps me guessing. And I, sure, I guess, you know, that's certainly a reason of, of its appeal, right? But it also can drive me crazy because um, I feel like when I'm, you know, picking at the minutiae and trying to figure everything out, I'm losing other things that are important of the story. And I just caught up in this bullshit of trying to figure out time and space. So uh, thank you very much for that madness. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I, but I, I see a, a seagull above your shoulder. I'm sure that's terribly interesting for people that are listening, but um, I assume that's from the lighthouse, right? It is. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty maddening movie with unreli- unreliable narrators. It's just the first one I could pick out and try to make an argument from um, in terms of the stuff behind you, but all right. Excellent. <laughs> Reliability is overrated, man. <laughs> no, for sure. Hey, we're telling a story. No, I get it. Lie to me all you want to. That's fine. <laughs> but don't make me do math homework in the middle of it. That's all yeah, I'm saying. I think our movie, the math homework is optional. I certainly didn't do it. Um, so so hopefully you didn't get a headache or anything. No, I did not. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to not get in those situations. But um but but Dan, it begs the question of like, you know, what sort of, um, you know, because we are dealing with in-world camera and faux documentary, um, but with, you know, a, a, a heavier science fiction twist than we're typically used to over here in, in Horror Town. Mm-hmm. So what was sort of your inspiration uh, for Blue Hour? All right. So um, there's I watched a lot of true crime during the pandemic. And then once this idea kind of happened, I stopped completely because it just became kind of tough to continue. We watched, um, this is one on HBO called uh, the murder on middle beach, which was like a homicide that happened in Connecticut, had some ties to a, um, like a pyramid scheme, like Tupperware salesman situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually, a, I don't mean to like sandbag it, but it was the point where I was like, wait a second, all this stuff is bullshit. Uh, I found it, <laughs> And again, not to say that that's a fine documentary. It's just, it's so, so subjective. So we started tugging on that and just going as far as we could. Like, how far can you pull someone along on this true crime thing until they start to question it? And that's what the movie is, right? Like, it's just this sort of this rickety bridge and eventually it falls apart. Or hopefully it does. If you make it that far to the movie. How, how much... How much true crime is too much true crime? Man, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like during the pandemic, my wife and I went immediately into like end of the world films. And once we oh, hit, yeah. um, there's that movie, I think it's called The Core. That was sort of the point where there was okay. no going back to like, there's no more dumb end of the world movies to watch. And then it is, was. Is Michael Bean in that? No, I don't think so. It's. Um, no. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. I'm thinking of something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russell's pulled it up here. Okay. I remember this coming out at my local movie theater. Me too. I love these. When I was a sophomore in high school. Yep. It's about the right time for me as well. It's, I love these kind of films, right? Like 
I'm a visual effects artist by trade and I just, I love nothing more than watching the world fall apart. Um, but then it was, you know, we had, you know, in New York city, you're looking at my entire, our entire apartment, right? Like the pandemic was not great here. Um, and you know, we just, I, I too, when you ask how much is too much, dude, I mean, the number of deaths that we were watching as like recreation is disturbing. You know, these are, real, <laughs> these are real people's lives, right? Like it's, it's messed up that we watch them for fun and it, yeah, uh, a lot. Well, you know, it's Western culture, man. We have a really weird relationship with death. And I think for most people, they think it's never going to happen. So we almost have like a morbid curiosity where we're watching this highly produced, highly why, why, exploitive. So why do you think that is we have a weird relationship with death? Because oh. I agree with you. Because like you look at other cultures, like the Mexican culture, you know, I think they have a, a much healthier uh, interpretation of death. And it's a celebration in those things. I think and it's, it's more colorful and, uh, you know, there's, yeah, it's culture. Fun. Uh, yeah. You know, the thing, I think it's a lot of stuff. I think one, you know, as we move away from religion, you kind of don't really ask questions anymore. And you're just like, Oh, you just take a nap forever, which period we're done. You know, there's nothing really to explore, but also, I mean, um, think about how we live. You don't have like three generations in a house anymore. So when grandma passes away, she's not in a room for two days. You know, like there are a lot of traditions there where you would go and you'd cover all the mirrors in the house because you didn't want their soul to come out of them. Like the whole thing yeah. is just different. Like somebody dies, you get them out immediately. And then, you know, if it wasn't gruesome, you have an open casket, maybe. But, you know, for most people who've died in my life, I my mom always gave me the option. Like, do you want to go to the funeral? It's going to be open. Ca-. And I always said, no. Why would I do that? And, you know, in my head, I'm like, yeah, also to like grow up, I think. And yeah, you have to reckon with. Yeah. All we have is pets, really. So I think, you know, it's really not a stretch to watch a true crime thing and just completely look at it as spectacle. Like, dude, I used to go to sleep watching Forensic Files all the time. And it was almost like a fairy tale that was being told to me. But since you brought it up, I'm curious. Did you watch Locke Henry, the Black Mirror episode? No, I, didn't. I highly recommend it because I watched the thing. So Clark watched all of the new season of Black Mirror and you, they're all basically a movie, like a feature, each one. And there is one Lock Henry, which is a uh, it's the making of a true crime documentary, which they're actually oh. pitching to the faux Netflix. But I heard Charlie Brooker talk about why he made it. And it's the same thing you just said, where he's like, dude, since when did this become highbrow art? He's like, it's always, it's been like, it used to be looked down upon if you're going to dig up somebody's dirt and make like a, a nice little documentary about it. But our relationship with like nonfiction film has shifted and there's kind of like, we give credit to them. I mean, Locke Henry is a perfect example of like a, of why maybe one shouldn't do this, but I, I just recommend watching it's episode two of the new season. Check it out. Yeah. And here's my problem with true crime. Mm-hmm. I think that it, you know what it is? It's the, binge, the BGM. It's the bingification. Mm. That's what I'm oh. calling it. it. Because I do think about how everything is structured now. Everything is structured to binge it. And I mean, I, again, I binged all of this last season of stupid ass black mirror. <laughs> I, I yeah, did the whole thing. Like, those were horror films but, pretty much. Yes, yeah. but, and it's built for that because oh, it was like, yeah, all right, yeah. I got I got none going on today. Boom, 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 knocked them out. Yeah. When you do that with true crime, 
Like that's what we're doing. Like when we're documenting anything, it's okay. Can we fit this into five episodes for a series? Can we fit it into eight? Whatever it is, um, and so we can you know binge it that way. It's and I for whatever reason I think that that sort of takes away from the impact for me, and it also it just feels more icky that we're packaging things in this way because like you know I think about you know when I was getting into film and, and watching you know true crime documentaries like capturing the Freedmans. That's a horrifying documentary. Uh, th- that's what in a two-hour format around that, you know, and that's it. And so, if 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 that story was released today, that's an eight-part miniseries that's ten <laughs> hours on yeah. Netflix. That is just going to be filled with so much air and water that is just it, it, like you know, I I just that's where my frustration lies. Your counterpoint. <laughs> no, I don't have a counterpoint. I, I, I think if anything, my my interest in it became the what it means for the people that have experienced these things. I mean, that's why there's this sort of element of time travel and relitigating someone's personal drama in this movie. I mean, I think it's important. These people have experienced the worst that we can imagine and we make fucking entertainment out of it. It's insulting. And, and, you know, you talk about bingification, like, holy shit, you know, you're preaching to the choir with a filmmaker and visual effects artist who's, constantly you know you watch something and it just ends there's no credits there's no discourse there's no con- i mean i'm not saying anything that every other filmmaker hasn't bitched about over the past five ten years or yeah whatever. yeah but it's sickening it's so sickening because it's just you watch this person's life documented and then we're going to move right on to well maybe you should put on black mirror next <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, literally pursuing life a little bit Man, it, it's funny too. I remember Brett Easton Ellis was talking about why binge culture is bad, and you know the argument has always been like the the water cooler, like oh people love Twin Peaks, and after every episode they go to work and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Where now he um, told a story where him and his I think boyfriend at the time were they had plans that night, and his his boyfriend was like, hey, my buddy told me about the show. You want to watch an episode? And then it turned into that Portlandia skit where they were watching. <laughs> um, uh, what the hell was that? It was that sci-fi show, Battlestar Galactica. Mm. And it's like one more episode, one more. And then next thing you know, you've canceled dinner, you're ordering out, and the whole day you're in there. And he's like, this is why people are fucking depressed. I, I just like shut down my whole day to watch this show yeah. that we binged. And I di- I stopped thinking about it immediately after. It's yep. so sad. And actually, there's <laughs> something really interesting that I read recently. So I loved um, Netflix had this show, uh, Archive 81. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I loved it. And especially being a New Yorker, and I live right down the street from the Museum of the Moving Image. And I, I love that place. It's like, it's special. Um, so it, it playing like a central location was cool. I love that actor, the main dude. I thought it was shot really well. It got canceled, not because people didn't watch it. People didn't watch it fast enough. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you don't get points for like screening Jaws faster. Like, I, I just don't understand. <laughs> Because uh, because they want the boom boom boom. Yeah, they probably want yeah. like retention rate. Like I've been I've been looking into a lot of like social media analytics and shit, and that's everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like how long do people interact with your progress or your your product, and do they stop? Yeah, and if they stop, it you know you're doing something wrong clearly. Which is so dumb because wouldn't you want someone to enjoy it? Walk away, tell somebody else that they enjoyed it, and then come back with two people watching it instead of one. Like. To yeah, 
But I think if I was a Netflix exec, what you would have to do is set up a Netflix forum so that when people were done watching it and they wanted to enjoy it, they would still stay on the platform, go talk to other people on the platform about the film on their platform and then return back to it. Yeah. Like it's all about never, never stop interacting with us. We don't care what you're doing. And people in the same sentence. I don't think that they consider people. It's, (laughs) it's, it's just algorithms and it's just what people want, you know, what, what eyes get next. I mean, they're going to be the first ones to have the, the pick your own movie where you're, you're looking at the screen and you're like, well, I want to watch Chris Pratt, uh, a dinosaur. And I want it to be a family <laughs> movie set in Arkansas. And then you're going to turn it on. The AI is going to sort out the rest. It's, you know, there's something intangible about AI because I've been, I've been playing around a lot with that too. Yeah, that it just gets boring. <laughs> like even mid journey, it keeps getting better and better and better. And you're like, man, I could make like I'm a big fan of, of Frank Frazetta, which is kind of niche now. You know, he's a oil painting guy who did a lot of Conan. Cool. And it's like I could do any Molly Hatchet and be yeah, Molly Hatchet. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I could do any I could do Miley Cyrus riding a horse and, you know, Frank Frazetta stuff. And, you know, it gets kind of boring almost immediately. So I'm, I always wonder about that. Like if when you can program your own film. Like, how long will that be fun? Oh, I don't have an answer to that. I just know it's like <laughs> I was on the beta test for um, Spielberg's uh, Wonder Studios. It's sort of a CG incorporating. It does light compositing, but does it pretty shit to be honest. And it's fun. I, I took a lot of like the um, the stock footage that we used in Blue Hour and put robots in it instead, just to see how that felt. And uh, you know, it, it felt like an AI was crudely compositing pretty good looking CG in a shot. Yeah. 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 The, the best use I've heard for mid journey so far is that we have a couple of buddies who do like photography mm-hmm. and um, they subscribe to it and will type in shit, not to use the image, but like for inspiration, like, yeah. Oh, maybe it'll give me a different frame or something. And then I'll go apply that. So I don't know, but for branding, oh, are you going to pay somebody for brand? I, I don't want to get off on an AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Again, now we're talking about (laughs) the blue hour. And uh, Clark pointed out that I reviewed this on episode 422. So if you haven't heard that, go back to it. (laughs) Now, the way it came into our radar was our good friend who I'm sure has contacted you, Thomas Burke, who is the uh, found footage. Have you not heard of Thomas Burke? No, I don't know Thomas. Do you know found footage critic, the website? Uh Uh-uh. Okay, well, he wrote, I believe he put your film as an entry on there. He is a, I call him the found footage adventurer. He is a dude who will um, Google in other languages. He will use Google Translate to get his words in Korean and then put out their like found footage movie and then use like what Billy Billy, which is the Japanese YouTube to try and track down new films and just categorize them. Cool. We do a segment on here where he'll email me and tell me a movie to watch. As long as it's in world camera, I'll do it. And every now and then I get like a little catch included. And he's like, Hey man, I got this film. It's sci-fi. I, you need to watch it, but you've got 24 hours <laughs> and you have to pay for it at a film fest. And if you don't do this now, you're going to miss it. Oh, you guys, said, oh, dude. you guys weren't at panic fest. No, I did it digitally. I see. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And uh, it, I mean, I do have a projector downstairs with surround sound. So he gave it the proper treatment. Dope. And uh, yeah, I got to say, um, I always come into these movies looking at craft. And the first thing I thought was how ambitious your film was. 
because of the the visual effects you did. But then I look at your IMDb and I'm like, wait, no, <laughs> I almost feel like it's cheating now. What your last credit as visual effects is on Smile. Right. But let's contextualize it a little bit here. There are two <laughs> compositors on Blue Hour. There were, you know, 40, 50 on Smile. Well, no. I, did over, I did like 300 VFX shots for Blue Hour by myself on like a solo. Like I was doing my own CG. Like it was... And then it was me and a buddy from college who coincidentally also is a visual effects artist now just passing shots over Google drive. So this isn't uh, having worked on smile for like six months with like a team of some of the best compositors and on the planet, it was a very different scenario. <laughs> no, come on. You trained your own AI and you just told it, make a door. And it was only like one thing only to age that woman up. That was the only thing I used AI for. Oh, you did. Wow, okay. Cool. Okay, interesting. So when you do VFX, like I'm fledgling at this. The only thing I know is After Effects. Mm -hmm. But like, is that what you used on your film? No, no, it's um, Flame and Nuke predominantly for the compositing. And then the CG was either a mix of Blender or um, done natively like in Flame. Oh, man, I want to learn Blender so bad. It's great. It's super cool. Yeah, I feel like Blender is super cool. It sounds like a band (laughs) our engineer would be into. I know. It really does, but it, it's what they made uh, the back rooms with. Oh, okay. Yeah, just yeah, for yeah, an yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you get like three modeling, and then you can take the model, texture it, light it, put it in to whatever you need to do in the compositing applications, which are your flame or, or nuke. They do different things kind of well. Dude, okay. So, how did you get into like the the world of VFX? Like at because you know it's always interesting. People always start off; they either want to be an actor or a director. Yep. And then as reality starts to hit them, they like, oh, maybe I'll be a lighting guy. You know, like well, it's also, <laughs> you know, it's also, you know, you got to find a way into the door, too. It's yeah. like, you know, if I can do this, you know, this will lead to that. Or also it's like, I no one else is going to do that. I have to do this. And so it's, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. So are you an art guy or how'd you get in there? No, my degree is in political science. Um, okay. <laughs> but, that was my next guess. <laughs> yeah. <it's funny. laughs> um. So I went to, to college and I sort of studied political science primarily and then film theory. Um, I've always loved movies and been pretty obsessed, especially with like uh, thrillers and like film noir. I'm really into like 40s crime movies, um, which obviously doesn't have a ton of crossover with our current project. Um, and then I fell into a company in New York City where I was just like, this was the tail end of um, – like celluloid for film. Like I was washing negative for movies like The Road and The Taking of Pelham 123. And what that entailed was like streaming this film up through a, a phone booth and like dunking it into very toxic chemicals. Um, and as I was doing this um, and learning kind of like how film had been made for the previous, you know, 100 years, um, the Che Guevara film that was shot on the red camera came out and everything I learned was kind of like lit on fire. So I fell into visual effects after um, just kind of by chance, to be honest. Like I knew how to read scopes. I knew a lot about how color worked and I was told I'd be good at it. Like you said, you look for your door. Like people tell you you're good at something in this industry. If you're smart, you listen and you you do it. You collect the paychecks and you ask if you can do it again. So 20 years later, I made Blue Hour. (laughs) Dude, fuck yeah. Okay. So I can't help it. Uh, as a fan of Smile, I got to talk to you a little bit about there. Sure. So you had 40 VFX artists on there. How does it feel when people look at the trailer and they refer to the to the art as a Snapchat filter? 
That has to be fucking infuriating. Oh, yeah. Well, because what was the movie that came out before that? That was the, like, it was the spin the bottle movie. They were in Mexico and the whole. The Truth whole, or Dare? Truth or Dare. God, you got that quick. Yeah. I, it's terrible. Which I think literally was like, see, now I don't even want to say that because I'm oh. sure there would be VFX artists out there like, no, it's not a fucking filter. Truth or Dare was like four years ago. Yeah, it was a minute ago. Yeah. But that, when we went out there, because ugh, we, do, we don't care. We'll go see any horror movie in the theater and we'll fucking like it. <laughs> and we awesome. went out there and that was the kind of like chatter was like, oh, it's the smile. It's just, it's all of that. Um, what do they call it? Augmented reality where um, it's become so easy that I think it's just shorthand for people to kind of be like, oh, it's just a filter. Well, I can tell you like, so I did the smile, like the smile that's on the poster is a shot that I did. That was one of the oh, main wow. things I was doing because I'm quite comfortable. And actually, if you look at like my website and the stuff that I've done mostly, I've done a lot of horror and I've done a lot of beauty and like fashion videos. And I'm really comfortable uh, augmenting stuff that's been filmed. I understand lenses quite well. And it's not even CG. It's it's all 2D repurposing what's already there, relighting, stretching, tracking, rebuilding stuff. Um, I love doing that shit. So there was a lot of like the smile shots of Rose and things like that, that I worked on. And honestly, if people want to talk shit on it, that's fine. Uh, check clears. I'm all right. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, it's like light chatter because by, I think after the film, um, when people watched it, it was more like third act things that people were lightly complaining about, but really nobody had shit to say. That movie was good. I I'm, I am shocked that there were 40 VFX artists on there, but not because the product, I don't think the product was lacking. I just don't think I have any palette for how much um, that medium takes. Like, you know, we always glorify like editing, directing, acting, but I mean, we watch corridor crew every now and then. And I've always loved how they kind of, you know, put a little lampshade on the, on how much effort it takes to make CGI and just visual effects. So I don't I mean, know. I, I feel like I'm you're kind of an unsung hero. Oh, it's an estimation that it's 40. It's probably quite like a number more. Um, there were six of us flame artists on it. And then there was a CG team doing something completely different and tons of people that don't really get the same recognition as like the flame leads do who are doing like rotoscoping, basic cleanup. Uh, fixing like, cause some of it was practical and, you know, directors love to say practical, practical. nothing's practical. Yeah. It's practical with augmentation. It always yeah. is. And the best stuff is like that. Uh, when you do have it, at least like a contact shadow or something that was filmed. But um, yeah, there's a ton of people, man. So many, all the producers, coordinators, people that just relate, edit to color, to VFX. Like just that communication ends up being easily 10, 15 people on a feature. All right. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm so curious. Like, That's- so I do. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I am a fan of like animation, and you know, I like one of my favorite movies is Wizards, and the rotoscoping in that film is so different when I hear it now. Like, what? Why is the term the same? Because rotoscoping back in the day, for people who aren't familiar, it would be like you film an actor and then you illustrate physically over the frame. And then now when I hear rotoscoping, I see like if you're making like a rap music video, you you edge out the image of the uh, of the person, the rapper, and then you move it around. They call that rotoscoping. Is that am I getting that right? 
Sort of. I mean, the base, like, it, it is the same. It's always been the same. Rotoscoping is just a technique of drawing whatever shape around something to isolate it so that you can layer it. If it's animation, you're probably layering solid color or something. Um, for me right now, you'd want to like trace out all my hair and stuff and you'd want everything, every edge to be perfect, like pixel accurate. So you could cut them out. And sometimes, you know, um, let's just say you want to put like a, a volcano erupting behind me. Um, you know, you could shoot me on a green screen, but that green screen is going to pollute my skin, right? I'm going to start looking like an elf and then <laughs> that's not going to necessarily match the lighting of the scene as well. So it might actually be easier for just one shot just to roto somebody out instead of keying, in, you know, doing a yeah. green or blue screen or kind of thing. Different wow. approaches. Yeah. So, Dan, yeah, Dan, I'm going to take a guess that you are not colorblind. <laughs> nope. Not colorblind. Yep. There you go. Well, Clark is. That's their oh, sure. Everything I heard is like, yeah, I can't do any of that. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Again, actually, because uh, this, again, a way I made the transition from working in color correction to visual effects is I know how to read a scope. So what that does is, you know, you have your image output and you can see how much red, green, and blue, you know, your RGB are in each image. And if you can read that scope, which does not require your ability to see color, you'll see how much... Um, is in the frame. So like right now, if you were to like look over there, you'd see quite a high peak on the, on the G mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You're, there are ways around. It. I actually do know a colorblind compositor. Um, Hell <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's wow. it. I, mean, I don't know how good he is, but I know him. You know, you know, it's funny because I've did a, I've done like very little color grading and trying to read how, trying to learn how to read those scopes. Mm-hmm. It's like a completely different language. And a lot of the time, if I do it the way I've, I've heard to do it, I'll look at it and be like, that's correct. But then I'll look at the image and be like, but clearly it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So then I'll alter it to make it look better to me, which everybody says is not what you should do because who, your, your monitor is probably not calibrated. It will look different on a phone. And I'm, so actually being colorblind might do better because you're just looking at the hard data well you know i come from a different perspective russell that's uh that's that's what i bring to the table yeah the <laughs> the funniest thing i thought was when you had to get that stupid game in the colorblind version what was that game you were playing that everybody was playing for a minute the word game oh yeah wordle, wordle. yeah you got the <laughs> yeah because otherwise <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> If I, I lost track of how many chances I had, because okay. I did the. the yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I went on a tangent there. I I did have a question. We've so with animation, everywhere, man. <laughs> I, I, dude. So when I see people talk about all the artists that used to be in like a location, either from Todd McFarlane complaining about Marvel to like Ralph Bakshi's crew uh, swearing at Disney while they had a bay of people, is it similar when you're doing VFX? Are you in like a room with like? 30 other dudes working frame by frame. And then you have like a middleman who is reporting to an upper, like what is the workflow like? Uh, So I'm a flame lead. So I'm usually in like a room working with either the director or the client. If it's an ad, you know, like on the fly, my, my job is the kind of like the carnival master to sort of entertain and get the work done as quickly as possible. Um, During the pandemic, I did a lot remotely had, which was weird because I had like celebrities on the other end looking in my apartment, which isn't always as beautiful as it is right now. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're pits though. Like the, the new artists will work, you know, 
lot of, a lot of people in a room. CG typically works like that. It's always different though. Every, every studio is different the way that they're, uh, they're configured. So then contrasted to blue hour, were you working remotely with your buddy or did, did he come over and would you guys party? I want to make it very clear how small blue hour was. I mean, there were days where I was the only person on set. It was me and an actor and a camera. Like we're talking, yeah. this was as lo-fi as it gets. The post-production was a tier above because we had a fantastic editor up in Toronto, myself in New York. And then we had another flame artist in Los Angeles. And that was pretty much it. Oh, and our mixer was up in Portland. So it was small. It was all done remotely. It was all like we had a Slack channel and a Google, like a shared Google Drive. <laughs> it God, was very like fun, though. Oh, it was. I, I mean, love it. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> I'm very surprised that it happened. Like, it completely changed my life. Like I used to stay up late and now I'm like up at 630 every morning because I've been so accustomed to just getting up early, putting in three hours and then going to work. Oh. It didn't change my life in like a spiritual way. It's just like yeah. the, uh, the, my, my habits have changed from working on it. Man, I've never heard that articulated, but it's something I've wanted to do. Uh, one of the problems I have is that I do. Um, Oksana just showed up. What is the term? Let me turn on your mic. There's a term when you stay up late, when you feel like you haven't had time to do what you wanted all day, but you try to like steal an hour back that you know you should be going to bed. Yeah, it's called existence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like similar to doom scrolling, I think. Yeah, it's something like the that. Term. There. So the thing is, I've always wanted to be like, well, I wish I could just put a hard out on my day and then wake up early because that time is limited until your regular day starts crashing in. So you'd have to have a cutoff where, you know, if you watch a movie at midnight and then you, you decide, hey, this isn't found footage. And then you jump into another movie and you're like, that's not found footage. You might actually start a movie by 3 a.m., which is what we did last night. Uh -oh. Thanks, Tubi, for your terrible fucking found footage genre category <laughs> two two of them actually 100 percent were not found footage it's very annoying uh -oh. that's this is what you're gonna have to deal with now that you've crossed into our like in-world camera world <laughs> uh this this like sub-genre because you know a lot of the fans exist online so i'm curious did you get a good feedback from uh panic fest which i'd never heard of prior to watching your film panic fest was I mean, first of all, they're great. Like they loved our short film a couple of years ago. They were big fans. They've had us come back with it a few times for some other special events. Uh, Andy and Tim are really awesome. And if you guys get the opportunity, I, I can't recommend the festival enough, but I honestly found the entire thing very overwhelming. Oh, because there were like good movies there, um, which is kind of like intimidating to go up against. Like I think our movie played and then it was like, uh, Abruptio, which was fantastic. This super weird movie where there's like life-size puppets that are just doing like the darkest shit I've ever seen. And then after that, it was Evil Dead Rise, which I'm sure our like entire budget is less than they paid for like sandwiches. So <laughs> yeah, this is, it's tough, you know? And then we looked at like, you know, there's some really just heavy movies that played Sisu, that, that Finnish movie about Nazi hunting is yep. one of my favorite movies this year. And it's just like, it's humbling as fuck, man. Like people are making really good stuff. And it's just, it's so sad to me that it just gets like glossed over because I, I couldn't believe we were there. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> pathetic, but I just, I was sitting there just like, I don't know what to watch next because there's so much cool shit. <clears throat> well, you know, I think, um, 
First of all, get over that imposter syndrome. You yeah. deserve to be there. You know what I mean? No, no, I'm I'm not an imposter. I've got quite the ego. Trust me. It's just it's much better to like <laughs> step back, have a little bit of like a macro view of filmmaking, right? Like sure. there's a huge difference, and it's cool to be compared to those movies. I'll say that the reaction to Blue Hour has not been all that positive. Some people, but that's like that's just a product of being compared on the same playing as movies that you genuinely enjoy watching. Yeah. You know, I accept that. Well, Dan, do you think that, you know, cause you, you know, you've worked on, you know, these large Hollywood movies. Do you think that having that experience and, um, also I imagine that built in corporate structure of everything when, when you're going out and doing things on your own, where you know you have to set that did did that sort of background in you know working in those working in that type of environment help you or you know what what was your sort of journey with that? I'm really lucky, man. Like we had so it's it's tiny voice. It's not me, right? Like it's a whole squad of us. And you know, we were joking about names earlier. Like when we talk to distributors, because I'm always logging in through the company email, they start calling me tiny halfway through, and I'm like a six five Chewbacca kind of size person. <laughs> so um I guess I say this because like our group is me with the visual effects background, Michael Hedford, who's our producer, cinematographer, editor. You know, he's up in Toronto. He's been cutting commercials up there for so long. He understands how that should go. Nick Brandreth himself is our art director, kind of like on-set photographer. And he's sort of like the master of like horror stuff, more so than me. He really has a mind for what's creepy. And that's kind of where the ideas usually start. And I kind of flush a story out and bring some humanity to them. And he's been a photographer working for brands like Mercedes and stuff. So like everyone involved has done a lot of bigger scale things, mm-hmm. but we don't like it. None of us like it. I've been on sets as like a VFX soup, easily like 300 people. I think it's fucking stupid. Again, I'll take the paychecks. Please continue to hire me clients. For sure. But I don't want to do that. You know, I think one yeah. of the sad things about what's happened with Robert Eggers career, you know, I really like the witch. I love the lighthouse. And I, I really like the Norseman, but I don't think he was all that comfortable making it. And I hope that there isn't like um, a reversion. I don't think I don't think you always need to just go bigger, bigger, bigger. I would love to see him make nothing but million dollar weird fucking movies with no stakes where he can really unhinge because that dude's a fucking powerhouse, man. I love his movies so much. Yeah, for sure. More of them. I would have taken 10 movies at like half the budget or, you know, a third of the budget, whatever. Then I would have him, you know, Norseman seemed quite big and stressful. Yeah, I remember he got um our engineer told us all the production notes he was getting. Yeah. Like how the film was not originally in English. It was going to yeah. be subtitled. And they're like, "No." And I think they let him screen it one time. Well, that that's his thing, you know, yeah. the original dialogue, you know, that's that's definitely full immersion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think I um that scale is scary when there's like consequences to your actions and you've got that many people like counting dollars behind your back. Like, I can't imagine that. That would suck. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Let, let me give you a little bit of um, uh, an idea of conversation around Blue Hour. Sure. Now, I saw The Northman, and we went with a bunch of people to the theater, and we had fun, and I think we talked about it for, I don't know, we talked about it on here, and it kind of came and went. And I think that's what we, the kind of attention we give to blockbuster movies now. Like, I'm not sure how, like, um, 
big context film like like mcu fans i don't know if they're talking about the new ant-man every day or not but i don't think so and i had a long conversation with a listener of this show about blue hour because he went back through your films. he rented it twice and went back through and was going frame by frame checking the date time on in the movie because he was convinced that if you're making a film a documentary and the filmmakers who, uh, you know, are the actors in the movie making it have access to time travel and you're doing true crime. Why wouldn't you step in? And he was convinced that some of the dates didn't line up. So I have this long text thread where it's almost like, uh, you know, like your, your buddy is on a new conspiracy or something, except it's a work of fiction. And I thought it was so incredibly interesting. And like just the nature of kind of like doing the show twice a week and moving, we tend to live with a, mo- a movie like pretty intensely and then move on to the next. And it's it's really cool when people bring me back. Mm. So just know, like, uh, you know, you might have been in there with Sisu, but, uh, you know, we recommended Sisu and I haven't had those kind of conversations about it. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you picked an in-world camera narrative here. Oh, yeah. Did, are you familiar with that term? Have you ever heard it before? Yeah, I mean, I don't watch a ton of like uh, found footage or this sort of thing, but I will say like one of my favorite comedies of all time is Popstar, um, oh. which everyone sleeps on. It's the funniest fucking, I mean, look. Very good. It's so funny. It's so goddamn funny and no one watched it and it's just, it's, it's depressing. Bomb. It's a total bomb, but I, yeah, that movie, I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. But, you know, that I love. I, I mean, obviously, I like Christopher Guest movies. I think there's something really funny about just humans um, in their natural state. And these sort of movies do that really well. Russ, did you ever see Popstar? No, I'm looking it up. Is that oh, you kind of like a, yourself, man. Just put oh, that yeah, on tonight. I'm a big Dewey Cox guy. Yeah, this I know. In, I, in I was the, just going to say, is yeah. it like Walk Hard? Kind it's of very a send much up, in that right. But it's not doing a biopic. It's doing like a behind the scenes or? Yes. It's sort of oh, like if the Beastie Boys, if like Mike D from the Beastie Boys had become Justin Timberlake and yeah. it became a like major pop star and was doing like shitty pop tunes that made no sense <laughs> uh, and extrapolate. The Lonely Island are so fucking funny. Um, and the way they handle that movie, there's some really great stuff. Tim Meadows is really funny in it. He's good. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a treat. I've never even heard of it. What? No. <laughs> yeah. you, yes, you have. It came out know. a while ago, though. God. Yeah, it's a couple years old. But uh, uh, yeah, 2016. Yeah. So what? Seven years ago? When the show started? God, I probably yeah. talked about it when it came out. Hundred <laughs> percent. I saw it theatrical. Dude, if you guys just want to talk about pop star forever, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta watch it. You know, it's funny. Um, well, you have issues with comedy. No, I don't. Yeah, yes, you do. That is long standing. <laughs> Dad, for, you know, I, I come from a comedy background and, you know, oh, and and doing this show. <laughs> thank you so much. And doing this show, um, you know, it, we're all going to talk about our influences and, and what drives us in those things. And I think over seven years, I have finally um, shaped a little bit more uh, into, you know, Russell's subconscious about how he interprets comedy and understand it and appreciates. And that has been one of the bigger takeaways 
from seven years. Otherwise, I feel like this show would be a complete waste of my life. But if I can change <laughs> your thought on of, comedy of what is funny and what is not funny, that means a lot to me. I don't like um, like general comedy. I realize that. So like blockbuster comedy, I can't really fuck with. Rated R comedy, I can. And what do you I, mean by general comedy? Like, like it's got to be like I don't want to say raunchy because I don't like American Pie, like that okay. kind of stuff. Like I don't like dick and fart jokes. I like mean smart comedy, I guess. Okay. So I, but I stayed away. Don't from say the word Anthony Jesselnick. No, it <laughs> <And he laughs> says mean and smart. No, but I don't like Jesselnick. I, the thing is, I would stay away from stand up because I didn't like going. Right. Because I have, you know, I did, not wanna, yeah, I did not want to be called upon. <laughs> but now that I can watch it like via YouTube and stuff. No, dude, I love it. Yeah. I also like the art. See, here's the thing. I like the craft of everything. And I like seeing how people make it, which is why I think I've been drawn to found footage and just the whole in-world camera thing, because every part of your film is made by a character in it. So theoretically, you could deduce a bunch of shit from even like a pan of the camera. Like any choice is, you know, they're a four playing into the script. And with stand up, it's kind of like that too. Like, you know, a heckler changes the whole set, the mood of the room, where they're playing, like the craft, like everything plays into it. So I don't, I don't know. I just don't really like, I feel like the, they think I'm stupid when I watch American Pie. You are. <laughs> Confirm. Yeah, I don't like being called it to my face. They're just reminding <laughs> You got to get over that. They're like, is this funny? He's fucking a pie, dude. Are you laughing? I'm like, no, fuck off. I don't know if American Pie is really like the high watermark of uh, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, I don't know. Airplane? That's the, the I like Airplane. I'm more of American Pie band camp. I like Monty Python. Ooh. That feels yeah. a little mean, though. Monty it's Python? Mean, yeah. It's clever. They're British. <laughs> okay. They get a pass. It's fine. Okay. There. I don't know. Where, where are we going with this comedy thing? I don't know. Oh, you should watch Maria Bamford. She's funny. Oh, she's she's the best so comedian working, in my opinion. The no best. one can steal yeah. her jokes. No one can do a Maria Bamford joke except Maria Bamford. Exactly, and that, that you know that's what you want when when you're so uniquely you. That's I mean that you know I think that's what most people strive for, um, unless you know you're a TikToker <laughs> or Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah or Netflix for sure. Okay, well, hold on. Well, now talking about comedy, one of the things because we we work on the unnamed footage festival, so a lot of like the vernacular and stuff, like we think too much about it. And I used to have a problem with the term mockumentary mm. because I thought it would always set people up for like Spinal Tap, and you know sometimes you're making Blue Hour, and it's like this isn't like really a comedy. And it took me forever to kind of, to finally realize that they're talking about mocking the format. So a mockumentary is kind of, you know, usually comedy is a good example because they're taking the piss out of this overly serious format, which is kind of what we were doing with true crime. Mm -hmm. You're like, just because you're doing it in this format doesn't mean it's highbrow. So with your film, you know, like thinking of your film, we started using a term that we call the faux doc, which just yeah. means like it's not real. And I don't do, would you see your film? Like, did you ever take into account that you're like, it's a send up of a documentary that you're doing? Not so much a send up of a documentary. I mean, I think we were pretty aware about comedy when we were making it though. I mean, I was always saying like, you know, the form has to be serious. We need to take this serious, but we don't take human beings serious. Um, 
And that's a, I think an important distinction because people are funny, you know, like I think the old man who plays like the photo store dude, you know, he's always looking around and like, you know, we actually did some dumb shit, you know, like the phone rings off screen and he like looks that way, you know, <laughs> I, I just like that. I, I think yeah. it just takes you out of remembering you're watching something or I don't know really what, wh- why I'm drawn to that, but I like it. I like the immersion of it. Um, you know, we're always the genre is something I'm always thinking about. Um, but for Blue Hour, we were always thinking of like, well, this is the screen and this is where the movie's happening, but our audio is always here and here. So we were always talking about kind of like where the audience was trying to keep pace with. So like Chris Donovan talks to his shadow at one point. Um, those sort of gags I, I definitely strive for. I, I like that kind of shit. <laughs> So was a blue hour fully scripted or were you doing a lot of improv? No, it was almost fully scripted. I mean, to the point where we knew when we were doing the beyond sequence, um, whose camera would be on at what point the script actually said specifically, if we were using like um, a reaction cam of like say Olivia versus Chris's point of view camera, one of the only lines that is improvised is the last line in the movie because the dude who plays Chris Donovan, who I've known for like 20 years now, He's just like, this isn't the line. It doesn't feel right. So I just let him do what he wanted. And um, I think it was a better, it was better than any bullshit I wrote, to be honest. <laughs> hey, good job, man. You know, one of the easiest way to tank your in-world camera film is to have a script and deliver it like poorly. Well, not even poorly. There's a vibe that like um, up and coming Hollywood actors have where they feel very like practiced and, mm. and they're performing and man when when you can feel that inauthenticity it will just turn that audience off immediately there's yeah. a fine line between like and this is for like any director including myself to remember that like we're going to shoot film number two like next year like we're starting our location scouts and things are happening but we just move at like we crawl man like our projects are like by design super fucking slow and involved but there's a there's a fine line between being too prepared and not prepared enough. And I like to walk that line where, you know, we, I know what I want, but I can't be too attached to it because we don't ever have any money. (laughs) So like be comfortable with the fact that you need to sort of find it too. Well, yeah, that, and also, you know, you got to pick your battles, right. And and kind of figure out, you know, where, where you got to put the most amount of chips in the, in which pot, you know what I mean? So, what what do you prioritize then? My biggest priority is usually comfort. Like I want to make sure it's like a fun time. If it's not a fun time, you know, all of us are working. So like, you know, it was fun to shoot Blue Hour in isolation. It became like our only social interaction during the pandemic. And we all came together for like a 10-day shoot to kind of like string all these scenes together somehow. Um, the next one. You shot the whole thing in 10 days? Uh, we shot collaboratively for 10 days and okay. we had shot a number of scenes to sort of take the load off um, in isolation. Like I would be with like one, like the scenes of like the documentary crew, like their confessionals. I shot that by myself. Um, a lot of like the newscaster stuff was shot by uh, our producer in isolation, which is one actor. And then like some of the scenes with like uh, the aunt or the cop, those were all shot just in isolation. Actor, cameraman, audio dude. But, you know, like the next movie, we want to have it be a different experience. We want it to be fun. We want to be like barbecuing and relaxing. So we're shooting up in the Catskills, middle of nowhere. We have access to this like 80 acre property and like a vacation home. So we take a little trip, 
action movie. Is it about vaudeville? <laughs> Let me tell it's about uh, it's about mental illness and uh, demons. <laughs> so close, yeah. That's what I say. Well, you know, Catskill, you shaky green. You say that, and I have to ask: Are you doing another in-world camera movie? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Boo! <laughs> We've joked about doing kind of a setup as one uh, for like an alien invasion situation, but um, yeah. I'm a sucker for cinematography, like above all else. And unfortunately, the in-camera thing it runs a little counter to like my typical skill set. And um, as much as I, I like think these movies can be cool, I don't think that they always look as pretty. I mean, blue hour has a sort of a past because it is the true crime of it. You know, we can still shoot pretty forest footage and the kind of stuff I like, but um, I don't know, man, they're tough. They're tough and they're tiring and people will just want to rip them apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here no, you just got to make it closer Better. to home. <laughs> No, 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 no. What you do is you make a movie, you do it all in world camera. Now I watched a, um, a podcast where they were interviewing the editors who did uh, missing the sequel to like searching. And they were talking about how, you know, if you try to blow up a text message to like use on a computer, it'll get pixelated. So they had to rebuild everything, everything on that screen. They just rebuilt. And I'm like, dude, you could do that. So what you do is you make a movie one character, you, and you make a living off of changing people's photos online. And you're like a hitman. People hire you to make bad photos of celebrities. <laughs> and then we just, we start from there and it's all in world camera. You don't have to leave one man operation. I think, I think you could crush something, but we can't let you leave. We can't let you leave the in world camera world. And you can, you can leave if you'd like. <laughs> no, you you're, you're free to move about the cabin. The UFOs will find you. <laughs> the, uh, it's fun. I mean, so we've had some great opportunities come up as a result of Blue Hour. I mean, I feel really lucky that people have liked it. But someone actually, a um, production company that I should probably remain nameless because we're still talking about other stuff. They pitched this story. I was like, that's literally Blue Hour again. <laughs> <laughs> there was no twist. There was nothing different. It was the entire fucking thing they wanted. And I'm like, this is... I'm having deja vu re- like reading this. And I'm a filmmaker that has made a number of movies about deja vu. I'm like, I, I can't, I can't. I'm going to fucking lose my mind here. Well, yeah. Did they add in one thing? Hopefully a lot more money. So where you can just... No, okay. Well, there you go. That was the one thing, right? Yeah. Change it up a little bit. Come on. I would love to just do... I mean, truthfully, like when you say a lot, I don't know what a lot more money means to you. Um, for what we made Blue Hour for, I would definitely... Um, like to use more resources in the future, but uh, it's not looking like that for phone number two. I think we're in the, we're decidedly in the, um, you know, like 250 K range for the next one, which is way more than we had this time. <laughs> but, but, but Dan, here's the thing. Your, your movie looks like it cost way more yeah. than $250,000. So congratulations Appreciate and it. keep doing it. Yeah. You know, well, if you can do it, like that's the thing. And you know, I, I, that's a that's an important thing that we always um, talk about, and that was a, a bigger focus, I think, early on in the show of like budget and and stretching dollars, and and you know, I you know, in the early days, I feel like we we went way more into numbers and figures on that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that you can always see care and you can always see thoughtfulness and you can always see competency and if you have a a, you know a confluence of those events something you know 
to be reckoned with can can be made. And uh, I, I think that's what you pulled off here, man. So, you know, it's like, you know, money's money. It's it's good to have. But, you know, if you've got the <laughs> skill and you care about what the hell you're doing, yeah. more than likely, it's going to work out. You can't buy intuition. Yeah. <laughs> so, like when something's yeah. not working. Dude, how many times, you know, we love indie horror here. And the one thing I always say, the type of movie that I can't really fuck with is those like very low level studio Hollywood films where everybody's kind of from an agency and they had more money than most of the people we talked to, but the film just has no soul. There's no heart. Everybody was there for a day and everybody, they got their check and bounced and fuck those movies. They're terrible. It feels, it feels like a job. Also, they don't inspire shit. Nobody's talking about that film after it's over. I mean, but those movies feel like I'm watching someone oh, yeah. at their job. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think yeah. what you're describing, in my opinion, is um, like a, a film that was written and a film that was produced and a film that was done in post. And what we do, you know, I am a writer director and I I really get excited about movies like, you know, I'm, I'm a big David Lynch fan. I think that, you know, he doesn't get enough love in the horror genre because for whatever reason, he has gotten so much accolades for dramas. And there's always this kind of weird hesitation once a movie wins an Oscar, like counted as a horror movie or whatever. Yeah. I love those sort of thinky, weird movies. I mean, Do like Donnie Darko is another one that's like really high on my list of like genre films. I, I love this shit. I want stuff that's thinky and weird and has like some sort of creature element and descent into madness. And I guess when I watch those kind of films, I can feel the care to the story and how it's been translated. You know, and I don't think you can necessarily translate somebody else's ideas the same way a writer director can write something and then be conscientious of how it needs to feel. Yeah, it's, lofty sure. and it's probably bullshit, but I mean, people have done it. People have done great jobs with scripts that other folks have written. It's just, it's not for me personally. And I can feel that same thing of like the workmanlike quality when someone clocks in to make somebody else's idea. For sure. Yeah, and the other problem is when you make a film that is like an oddball thing that works and people don't understand why it works, so they talk about it all the time and enjoy it, and then that boils back up to the production studios and they're like, hey, get Richard Kelly on the phone. Let's can what he did and try and do that five more times. And you're like, that's exactly how you don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm bummed to hear that you're not only leaving found footage, you're mocking it now. <laughs> truth, Damn it. Truth be told, I was mocking it while we were shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. You know, I I think a lot of the times it's, you know, people used to always talk about horror movies and directors who were not horror directors made the best because they had a story they needed to tell that just happened to be in the genre. I feel that way a lot of the time with in-world camera too, where a dude maybe didn't have enough money or couldn't afford things or just had to shoot on the fly. And they're like, let's just, you know, do it on our phone. And a lot of the time those are fucking good. And they go on to try and can that and they can't. We so, have had discussions just to be like totally upfront about it. Like we've talked, you know, the next movie for us is an enormous effort. And we have discussed like, well, is there something smaller that we could do as well? That doesn't have as much stakes that we could then use just to keep things coming out yeah. because it's tough. It's tough to be, you know, scraping together 250k or whatever to make a movie that looks like it was shot for 5 million um and the the number of corners and things you have to cut to make that work it's, it'd be kind of nice to have something smaller and simpler to make and 
we'll see what happens. I'm never going to say never to something, but I I do need a break from it next. (laughs) Well, you know, make a two minute short film and we'll show it. (laughs) There you go. Then we'll have an excuse to bring you out here and hang out. Always. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Dan, um, you know, you said you got the movie you're you're working on, but, um, you know, I imagine what can you, if, if you can tell us anything uh, about what you got coming up, please do that. And, uh, anything else you got going on? I mean, the main thing is, uh, is the, the new movie, uh, Phoenicia, which is going to be hopefully shot next summer, depending on how these strikes and everything kind of peter out. Um, other than that, we've been working on, uh, I have like a sort of a zombie script because I, I feel like there's, it's been a while since I've had a good experience watching a zombie movie. And there's one that I've been thinking about for a long time that I think would be really fun and a fun twist on it. More of like a Cronenberg-y kind of body horror mm. take on zombies. Yep. Okay. Very condensed, very small sort of thing. And then, um, you know, I think the film noir fan in me is, we're, we're eyeing a heist movie. I've got this great twist on a heist film that I want to make. Um, it has some really about. dark turns. Um, a little bit less in the genre space, but, you know, I think there, I think there's enough crossover. It gets pretty scary. Uh, how about that? What if zombie heist? <laughs> <laughs> I think That's a lesson of blue hour has been throwing everything at it. Isn't always the solution. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, hold on. Before you go, I have to, I have to ask you as a professional, um, is there any horror film that you've seen recently that you just had to like, you had to give them props for the work they did as I, far as VFX. Oh, visual effects specifically. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. I mean, like a few and truthfully, like I'll be very upfront. Like I will be harder on my own movies than anyone else. Whenever I see anything, it's hard for me to say that it's not good. In fact, I think that the evaluation of art is kind of bullshit just intrinsically. Yeah. Um, not to like belittle what you guys are doing. If you're talking about movies, that's one thing, but I hate this like comparative. This is good. This is bad. Everyone needs to stop fucking talking in absolutes about art and either enjoy it or or explain why you enjoyed it or think about the lens you're looking at it through. Anyway, that's like a personal thing. My man. I'm obviously very butthurt about these reviews. (laughs) Dude, they're not even bad. I've been looking at them. Dude, you get five stars. People, you know, you made a movie much like the ones that you said you liked earlier where people either connect with it completely or don't. Yeah. So I mean, on that side of the spectrum. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, so I think that's a hallmark of something worth watching. So you did it. Appreciate that. But to answer your question, I I just watched Evil Dead Rise finally um, because I couldn't see it at Panic Fest. Um, I thought that that movie, I mean, it had gore set pieces. I'm not a gore hound at all. Um, Some of those turned my stomach, though. I thought that cheese grater shot was fucking crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there's something else I saw recently that looked great. I mean, abruptly. Do you ever you know, see anything and wonder how they did it? It's rare, truthfully, which sounds really good. Um, I would say one of the ones I really didn't understand how they did it. Um, I mean, it's it's dumb. It's a dumb answer, but like uh, Avatar. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just fucking. Yeah. I, I am a. I fucking love James Cameron so much. <laughs> I don't always love his movies. I love him. I love yeah. that, I love his uh, ability to see past what everyone else is seeing and to do something. Uh, another good one that people don't give enough credit to are those newer Planet of the Apes movies from like the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. No one gives those. I, I'm fuck. I love apes. Just I love apes in any fucking 
like, I have to fuck it. I just give me eight movies all day, please. Yeah. Those movies look great. Weta is doing, I, in, to my money, the best visual effects work on the planet. Uh, I love everything they do. And then I guess from a designy VFX standpoint, oh, specifically with Weta, I would just point out the, the wet hair on the apes, like in the fishing sequences and stuff are just, it's unlike anything I've ever seen or the detail, which is funny because, you know, they're doing Avatar. So makes sense. <laughs> um, everything like a studios produces, I'm super tapped into. I love those animation movies. I think that what they've done with stop motion, mixing it again, this is what I, I always say with like when we're coming up with our like ideas, like, well, what part of it is real? What part of it is digital? Where do they touch? And Leica has hit that on the head. Time and time again, from Paranorman, Box Trolls, all those movies, they look so specific that no one else could have made them. And that's something that like your Disney animation films or Dream DreamWorks or whatever, like aside from that uh, Spider-Man movie and potentially that Ninja Turtles thing looks fucking sick. I don't know if you guys have seen that Mutants Unleashed. No, I, I would like to. The new Turtles? Yeah. The new yeah, Turtles the, cartoon. I saw the trailer. That trailer looks sick. Yeah. It looks amazing. Yeah. It was, uh, I'm a Ninja Turtles fan, so that, that shit was crazy. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I, 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 the last few iterations uh, okay. registered n- nothing with me, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm excited that this one at least is like, okay, I could probably give this the time of day. That style to me reads New York City super well. And um, mm-hmm. it's funny, we were just writing the new movie. We did like a little two hour session before here. And that comes up as like a reference point like for our new film, like, which is weird for like a demon movie to be referencing a child movie. <laughs> but a lot of demon children. <laughs> demon children. Yeah. I mean, everyone likes the brood. <clears throat> sure. oh my God. Yeah, man. Well, it, it's incredible. Like hearing you talk about VFX and just thinking how many horror fans like have books on practical effects and really like love it. But as I'm talking to you, I think it's just because it looks fake. Like the the problem with VFX is it's kind of like a thankless job where when you do it correctly, it's almost like good filmmaking and people just don't even think about it. Oh yeah. And it kind of blows right by them. But and I'm fine yeah. with that. Like if I've done my job well, you don't even notice I was there and that's mm-hmm. fine. I don't, I, I don't get paid more if, uh, <laughs> if people are talking about it more. Um, so are you saying you're the referee of uh, filmmaking? Visual effects artists are the referees of, of filmmaking. I think the executive producers uh, and studio heads are yeah, really awesome. referees on that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, you don't want a Dan Bowers school. You open it up and everybody's like, dude, Dan Bowers. They're doing Savini for you. you got <laughs> shirts on. I speak at a number of universities that do either video game design or filmmaking. Um, I speak at like SVA and uh, Pratt, a couple of other schools in the city. and. Uh, that's close enough. If I'm being honest, uh, kids in schools, I hate to sound as old as I am, but they were all on their cell phones the last time I was at SVA and it kind of pissed oh. me off. <laughs> yeah, scumbags. <laughs> oh my God. It's an age thing, man. Like, whatever. I'm going to die eventually and they'll be running the things and it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, dude, when you, if you commit to this horror movie and it comes out, please let us know, man. Uh, we're there for you, and we're cheerleaders whenever you need them. Um, awesome. And if you guys ever want to talk visual effects, just let me know. I'm always down to uh, talk through how it was made. And, uh, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not ever trying to, like, not do things practically. I know that's, like, an important thing to people right now. But, 
you know, we try to just do it cheap and look as good as we can. And uh, unfortunately, like it's usually cheaper for me to go and fix it digitally than it is to to build it <laughs> and destroy it. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's an oversaturation of practical effects or I think you get a movie and they have a budget and then 90 percent of it goes to decapitating a character. And then the rest of the movie's just flat. Mm-hmm. And I, I know back in the day it used to mean something when you're like, fuck, dude, they blew up a head. And yeah. that's all it took for you to buy that movie. But now I'm like, come on, give us something. I'd actually like to see a bigger rise of like indie VFX instead of like a balancing there. Yeah. They're everywhere, man. I mean, so many people are doing cool shit. Like look at everything everywhere all at once. That was like a, that was a similar thing to how we did it. Um, but you know, they did it yeah. much better. They had like, <laughs> how many people worked on that? Allegedly it's, they say it's five. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So all they right. had, you know, but that's again, that's their core team. And I'd be curious to know how much of it did go out to like uh, India for rotoscope or, you know, clean up. Like, how much of the other stuff did they do as well? Um, I don't know. But, you know, props to the Daniels. This guy's fucking rule. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dan, you rule as well, man. We appreciate Thanks. your time. Thanks, guys. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Stat. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs>